Thank you, Renee, and thank you for Jared and Susan for the update. I thought a minute for a while while you were talking there, Jared, when you said that you could fill the rest of the morning talking about Nicaragua of giving you the option of me or Jared. But I realized how that would turn out, so I'm not going to give you that offer. You're stuck with me for the morning. You know, as uh, if you were to visit me during the week and step into my office and walk through the door of my office and walk straight ahead on top of my bookshelf, you would find a few items that, that are meaningful to me. You'd look straight ahead, you'd see a, a display of a couple photos of my family on our, one of our favorite family trips up on the stand there. You would uh, find two baseball cards from my favorite baseball player, my favorite Detroit Tiger growing up, laying there on that bookshelf. And you would also find these two items proudly displayed. You'd find these two gavels on my bookshelf. And you're probably thinking, what in the world is he doing with two gavels on his bookshelf? When, when my father was sick with his cancer and he was passing away, there were just a few things that he said to us kids. He said, you know, just don't throw these things away. A few meaningful things to him, and his list wasn't long because he wasn't one that cared that much about stuff. But these two gavels made the short list of things my dad just didn't want us to throw away. They are um, memories of when he was vice president of Synod one year and president of Synod the other year. And he said, just don't throw them away. And so now they sit on my bookshelf in front of my office. And uh, purely, I don't think they ever hit anything in the world. They were given to him after sin. And so they're purely for display purposes only. Although when I did come to Ivanrest, the first council meeting I came to lead and sat down at the head of the table, and, and there in front of me was this big gavel waiting for me, and I never used it. In fact, I think I hid it somewhere. Um, and I've never used it in all the years. Gavels, they, they convey a sense of of authority and power, don't they, right? We, we most often think of them in our culture in a courtroom setting, right? When a judge walks into a courtroom and she sits down and she picks up her gavel and with one swing of her gavel, she hits, she hits the counter and calls the whole room to order. That gavel says to everybody, quiet down because important business is about to start because an important person just walked in. Maybe even more impactful, at the end of those legal proceedings, that judge will, will declare the verdict, will declare the sentence, and swing the gavel to declare, and that's it. To put an exclamation point on the work that has just been done and the verdict that was just handed down, right? There is power, there is authority conveyed by the judge with a swing of a gavel. Well, this morning, you and I are going to step into God's eternal courtroom where the final verdict is spoken, where the final gavel swing happens that puts the final exclamation point on eternity. And I would guess that, that the picture of God as judge with a gavel in his hands is not our favorite picture of God, right? Especially this Christmas season when we would prefer to celebrate with the image of a picture of a baby, 
right? And we prefer to focus on love and peace and joy, right? But to know who we're going to be celebrating on Christmas Day in just two days, we need to know, as we focus on all of this Advent, we need to know who this baby grew up to become. Who, who are we truly celebrating when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? And we recognize him this morning in the courtroom setting. We, we recognize him in that setting every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, don't we? In fact, do me a favor. Would you stand up with me? Go ahead and stand up where you are. And I want you to join me in reciting the Apostles' Creed here this morning. I think it's going to show up on the screen for us. And I want you to pay attention to what you say about God and Jesus as our judge, as you say what we believe together. Join me, would you? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may go ahead and be seated if you would. Now, did you, were you paying attention to what you said? What you just declared? You declared that our Jesus, whose arrival we are celebrating on Christmas Day, is now eternally sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty for the purpose of judging the living and the dead. That's a pretty powerful image of who Jesus is right now. Jesus is the judge holding the eternal gavel and he's using it to pronounce verdict on all people, the living and the dead. And that, for many of us, is a pretty frightening image to see, isn't it? And so we need this morning to better understand that picture of Jesus as our lawyer and Jesus as our judge. So take out your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, way in the back of your Bibles, page 973, 973. Hebrews 10 is not very much of a Christmassy scripture passage. And let me warn you before we read it, it is not the easiest passage to understand either. The whole book of Hebrews is not the easiest book. So as we read these first 18 verses together, if, if you're hearing it and wondering what exactly it's saying because it seems rather confusing and why in the world are we reading this two days before Christmas it's okay the people around you are wondering the same thing okay we'll discover the answer together as we talk this morning listen to Hebrews 10 1 through 18 it says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in this scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, in order to understand, and in order to truly be able to celebrate the arrival of this baby at Christmas, we need to think back because of this passage we just read, we need to think back to the not-so-popular book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. All right, Leviticus. It's the book that, that most clearly gives us the Old Testament law, right? The, the list of rules and regulations in the Old Testament for the Old Testament people of God in order that they needed to, to follow in order to remain pure before God. Right? What animals were clean and unclean and, and what things you could touch and you couldn't touch and what actions you could do and you couldn't do and you had to do and what diseases and ailments made you impure and on and on and on. It's a hard book to read from the Old Testament. Okay, but the book of Leviticus gives you all those rules and regulations and then it also tells us what the people of Israel needed to do in order to make atonement after they became impure, in order to make atonement after they had sinned, how to become right with God again. 
Okay, that word atonement. It's not a word that, that a lot of us use often in our conversation. What does it mean? Well, Webster gives us a pretty clear and simple definition of atonement. He says that it is making reparation for an offense or an injury. It's making things right after you've made them wrong. We do it all the time. Right? When, when you hurt your little brother or you hurt your little sister, you make atonement when you say that you're sorry. When you break your mother's favorite vase, you make atonement as you pay for it with your allowance. Right? When, when you forget your anniversary, you make atonement for it all year long. Right? With a dozen roses and out for dinner and whatever you need to do to make atonement for forgetting that anniversary. When God's Old Testament people sinned, when, when they went against these commands of God, they needed to make atonement. They need to make payment for this offense against God. And if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you know that, that making atonement was a bloody process. For an offense against a pure and holy God, blood was demanded as part of the atonement process. So all day long, at the tabernacle and then at the temple, there was a steady flow of animals being brought to be slaughtered, right? The priests would, or the people would bring their animals to be sacrificed and the priests would do the slaughtering and, and the burning and the sprinkling of the blood. There was a constant river of blood flowing from the altar, flowing from the temple because that's what was necessary to make atonement for sin, to become right with God again. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that things have changed. I'm grateful that here in Ivan Rest Church, we are not slaughtering animals every day. I don't think I would have this job if that was in my job description today. We don't slaughter animals anymore, but that isn't because we don't need atonement anymore. We do. We need to make things right with God just as much as the Old Testament people of Israel needed to make things right with God. Every day, our actions make us impure. Every minute that we live, our offenses against God continue to grow. Every single moment that we are alive, our sinfulness is pulling us away from our relationship with a pure God who's holy and demands holiness from his people. Our guilt has not faded and God's demand for purity and holiness has not diminished. And the price that must be paid for your atonement, for my atonement, the cost of making things right between us and God again, it's still the same. It still involves blood. So Jesus came and made that payment. More than that. Jesus came, this baby that we're celebrating in two days at Christmas, Jesus came to be that payment. That's what Hebrews 10 is talking all about. 
It tells us how Jesus took this whole Leviticus, Leviticus sacrificial system and he turned it upside down. He made it useless and obsolete because Leviticus was never the answer that God intended. This sacrificial system that he set up for his Old Testament people was only a shadow, it tells us, right? It just said that in, in Hebrews 7. It's a shadow of what God was going to do through his son, Jesus Christ. Because after all, that, all of these animals had been slaughtered, after all these sheep and cattle and birds had shed their blood, and after all the blood had been spilled, and after all the fires that had been burned upon the altar, you know what? The sins of the people were still there. All of those sheep, all of that blood, it could not take away the sin of a human being. They were simply, those sheep, those cattle, those birds, were simply God's way of pointing towards the final and complete atonement that he had planned, towards the sacrifice of blood that really would finally cleanse us once and for all. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that brings complete atonement to us, that sets us right again with God. The arrival of Jesus, the life and the death of Jesus, you know what he did? He reset every part of the sacrificial system as he fulfills the promise of atonement. It's what he came to do. First of all, Jesus is the perfect priest in this sacrificial system. Right before it was the Levites. And, and, and all of these Levites, whose job it was to offer these sacrifices, whose job it was to be the ambassador, the go-between, between sinful people and perfect God, right? In the middle stood, stood the, the priests, the Levites. You know what they were in the picture? They were the lawyers. They were the lawyers in the courtroom standing between the sinful people and, and the judge. They stood on the people's behalf and argued on their behalf sacrifice on their behalf. The problem was they couldn't be very effective lawyers because they were guilty themselves. They needed forgiveness. They were sinners. They needed a defense before the perfect judge as well. So how could they rightly defend a sinful people before a holy God when they were sinners themselves, when they were criminals themselves? They couldn't. They did their best. They followed all the directions that God had given in Leviticus the best as they were able. But they still could not be the perfect priests that were required. But Jesus could. He's the perfect lawyer. The perfect lawyer for this eternal court case of ours. He's the perfect lawyer because this baby that we're celebrating, first of all, is fully God. He is God himself, and that makes him uniquely qualified for this position of high priest because he's the only one who can confidently step into the presence of God Almighty. He can step before a holy God, perfect and pure and sinless and holy you can't, I can't, no priest ever could, but Jesus can. He can step into that courtroom boldly and confidently because he's fully God, but this baby is also fully human. 
He's one of us. So he can perfectly represent us as well. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what a priest was supposed to be. The perfect ambassador between sinful people, perfect God. And as the perfect priest, as our perfect defender, he offers the sacrifice that makes all other sacrifices obsolete. He redefines what an atoning sacrifice truly is. You see, Jesus, our perfect priest, doesn't go out into the world. He didn't come here as a human being to go and find the perfect lamb. The lamb without blemish. Just the right sheep to sacrifice to God on our behalf. No. Because he knows what Hebrews 10 verse 4 just told us. He knows that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Jesus is not looking to continue the broken pattern of Leviticus. He's looking for the one sacrifice that will finally give true atonement, that will finally make everything right again between God and his people once and for all. And he realizes that that sacrifice won't be found out there somewhere. That sacrifice will be found right here. It's himself. The perfect priest becomes the perfect sacrifice as well. This great high priest, this perfect lawyer who's defending us before God, you know what this lawyer does? He lays himself down as a sacrifice because he's the only one who can carry the weight of the sin of all humanity. He's the only one who can enter into the presence of God, and he's the only one whose blood can make atonement for our sins. And on that cross, that's exactly what he did. He paid back what he had not stolen. He suffered punishment for a sin that was ours. He made atonement for your brokenness before God, for my brokenness before God. His blood, not the blood of some animal, his perfect blood is the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. This perfect priest becomes the Lamb of God. That's what Isaiah said that he would be, isn't it? Isaiah wrote, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's how John the Baptist recognized him when he saw him. Jesus walked towards John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's exactly what a sacrificial lamb does. It takes away the sin. It's what our perfect lamb, Jesus, does for us. He takes away your sin and my sin. He makes atonement for us so the injury and the wrong that we have afflicted through our sin might be repaired again so that we might be forgiven. 
And you know what? The sacrifice that he made, it's complete. It is final. It is enough. It's enough to cover all your sins. It's enough to cover all my sins once and for all. So we don't have to worry anymore. I know many of us live life full of anxiety, full of worry. We do not have to worry that somehow we might now fall out of favor with God. We don't have to worry that, that maybe that sin I committed yesterday is big enough that it just can't be forgiven. We don't have to go into today or tomorrow or next week worried that, that this might be the time where, where we step over God's invisible line, where, where we do something that's just as unforgivable. We don't have to worry that, that maybe, maybe this week we'll cross over, our, our bank of sins will grow too big and we've done too much. And God's account of forgiveness will run empty for us. We don't have to worry that God's grace will run out because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and complete. Right, so, so with the Leviticus system, the people of Israel kept coming back again and again. Another sheep, another goat, another bull, another bird, more sacrifice, more blood. Why? Because their sacrifices never took they never really worked. They never fully accomplished what they were intended to accomplish. They had to keep going back again and again. We don't need to go back. We don't need to keep going back. Because Jesus' body was enough. Jesus' blood was enough. Verse 12 told us that after Jesus made his sacrifice on the cross, it says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We profess that, right, with the Apostles' Creed. He sat down. What does it mean to sit down? You sit down when the job is done. It means it's finished. It means it's complete. He's done once and for all. That's the last sacrifice ever needing to be made. Now let's, let's put all the pieces of this image that we're using this morning together. And when we do, you'll see why you don't have to fear. Jesus, our perfect priest, the one who can enter into God's presence on our behalf, be our lawyer, right? And Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, who makes the full payment for our sin so that we can be forgiven and made right, the Lamb of God. This is the same Jesus who now stands with the gavel in his hand as our perfect judge. It's the same Jesus. And I do not think that Jesus went through all that he went through. Right, that he became a baby born in Bethlehem, that he grew up and experienced all the pain and the temptation that we experienced. I don't think that he allowed himself to be arrested and beaten. That he willingly hung on a cross and experienced a, a horribly torturous death. I don't think that he sacrificed himself, literally himself, now only to find some kind of twisted enjoyment in condemning sinners to an eternity apart from God. 
I don't think that now he finds some great joy in swinging this gavel gleefully, condemning people to punishment and eternal condemnation. That doesn't make any sense. Yes, yes, our judge Jesus will rightly pronounce the appropriate verdict on each life. He doesn't diminish truth. But he finds no joy when those who choose to live apart from him in this life have to continue that for eternity. That breaks his heart when that gavel swings for them. We heard it from Second Peter last Sunday morning. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In this courtroom scene that we will live into, we have a judge who's on our side. He's not unbiased. He is on our side. And he's eager to, to swing this gavel, declaring us innocent declaring us free for eternity. He is eager to love us. That's our judge. That's exactly what he'll do. When we choose to live with him in this life, he will eagerly welcome us into his presence to live with him forever. You and I just need to remember how desperately we absolutely need him. We desperately need a lawyer to defend us because we cannot defend ourselves before a holy God. And we desperately need a lamb to pay the price of our guilt and our sin because there's nothing we can do on our own to make us right with God again. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we try and live, we can't do it because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exception. But with Jesus as our judge, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. There's Christmas right there. God did by sending his son in human flesh. So now, when the gavel falls for those who know Jesus, the verdict will be innocent. And we will be set free for eternity. That, my friends, is why we will come back in two days and truly be able to celebrate Christmas because we know who this baby became. He became our lawyer. He became our sacrifice. He became our judge and our greatest hope and our greatest assurance. We will, on Tuesday morning, truly celebrate the birth of this baby when we recognize this baby all grown up as our loving judge, eager to set us free. Let's give him thanks for that. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, what an amazing love you have for us. That you would come and you would live in our place and you would die in our place. That you would be the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world and to take away the sin of Tony Meyer and every other person right here. Thank you. You know the fears that we still live with, Jesus. You know how we worry of whether we've been good enough. Remind us that we're not good enough. We worry that we're not holy enough, and we're right, we're not holy enough. Remind us, Father, in the midst of those fears that we don't have to be afraid because we have a judge who stands for us. We have a sacrifice that was made for us. And you, Jesus, walk us into the presence, into the courtroom of God Almighty. And by your blood, you set us free. And so instead of worry, give us peace. Instead of anxiety, give us joy. Instead of fear, give us an immense gratitude that eagerly wants to live for you. That receives your grace and forgiveness. And celebrates who you are and who you make us to be in you. Jesus, prepare us to celebrate on Christmas morning the arrival of our judge as a little baby. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.